Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. I want to welcome everyone to episode number 14 of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective, the early years of the WWWF, the WWF, and the WWE, Madison Square Garden, the mecca of professional wrestling, a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. Here's an excerpt from Jim Wilson's book, Chokehold. Madison Square Garden was the single most desirable booking engagement in the entire country in the 60s and the 70s. On this show, we record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And to help us look back at all these shows, a man who went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting on August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Arizzi. John, how you doing? Doing really good. Getting ready for the holidays, as I see you are. Yes, yes. I got the Santa beard going. I'm booking Santa. Santa appearances, Santa photo shoots, Santa. A lot of, lot of Santa stuff going on on my end. How's everything down there in Tennessee? Uh, well, I'm basically getting ready to go to New York for uh, the Thanksgiving break, and this show will come out probably the Monday after Thanksgiving. But, uh, yeah, getting ready for the holidays like everybody else is. Uh, everything else is good. Uh, just uh, looking forward to covering this show with you a very historic show in a lot of ways for me um and you know getting to see some of the stars that were on the show especially one in particular from minneapolis uh, for the first time ever was really a treat it is it is and we will get to that in a minute and to keep the show going keep the lights on we want to thank all our patreons patreon.com slash john Rizzi. Help support the show, help support the company help support us to keep the lights on so we can bring the show to you every week for free that is correct, Tim. The Patreon page is doing really well. We're putting a lot of content up there, and especially for this show that we'll be covering, uh, found a bunch of uh, Instamatic photographs that I'll be putting up on the patron page, uh, little three-and-a-half by three-and-a-half little square pictures from uh, from back on this date, November 27th, 1972. Very cool, very cool. Now, if you want to hear the other episodes, they're up, so we go in chronological order. Uh, the last three WWWF shows have not been very good. Let's go back and 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 look at them. We we had you know the first show that we were talking about was with the return of Bruno to the Garden for the first time. Then we did had the Shea Stadium show, and then the first show after the Shea Stadium show. So there's three shows right there that they, they weren't doing very well. So this show, this show at Madison Square Garden was a big show to start getting the people to come back to the Garden to you know pick up the pieces and let's get back on the ball. Yeah, this show um, had a little bit more excitement, and we had uh, some special attractions that appeared on it. Uh, uh, there was uh, some excitement about Ray Stevens, who was in the main event. Definitely was one that was a better uh, show, and also uh, a little bit better attended as well. Let's go back to Monday, November 27, 1972. Uh, let's talk about the buildup first, John. Was there a buildup on TV for this garden show, and what do you remember of it? The buildup was... Uh, 
you know, Ray, Ray Stevens, they were building up him as a legitimate contender for Pedro Morales. Uh, this marked the first two main events that these guys appeared in. So as your typical heel comes in, destroys opponents on television, gets the title match with uh, Pedro Morales, and then uh, goes on his merry way after the program is over. Where were your tickets for the Monday, November 27th, 1972 show? As I recall, I was in the first uh, seven rows, probably seventh row, tenth row, something like that. I never was able to break that uh, mark. But, yeah, well, they were pretty close up, and I was definitely uh, looking forward to uh, shooting some pictures for this one. Did you go outside? I know it's now November, so it's probably dark outside. So usually you, you were saying you started this summer going outside and actually seeing the wrestlers come into the building. Did you do that again? Uh, it was cold outside, so I uh, definitely did not do it for this particular show. All right, let's get into the show. Monday, November 27, 1972, 18,183. That's 3,800 shy of a sellout. That's good. That's good for the WWF. They're coming back. They're making a new mark. Let's get into the show. First match, El Olimpico defeated Joe Turco in 9 minutes, 14 seconds. Yeah, El Olimpico uh, definitely uh, got a nice picture of him coming into the ring without the mask on. I'll be putting that up for patrons. But El Olimpico, also known as Joey Cora, a uh, mask wrestler working with that open face mask. And, and the first mask wrestler, just a little spoiler, the first real mask wrestler by the name of Neil Mosker appears on the next garden show in December. Uh, and this is a masked band that was uh, from a ruling way back in 1845. And we will get into that ruling a little bit more in next month's show. But uh, uh, it was, uh, you know, El Bogon's Turco. Turco is a jobber. Uh, a lot of people said he was odd as a slice of pizza. <laughs> he was more than just a middle-level heel jobber. Uh, his run with the WWF was kind of towards the end of his career. And uh, I used to love when he was introduced to Continental Nobleman uh, from Catania, Sicily, Joe Turco, with his little Italian gestures. And, of course, as everybody knows who hears this podcast, was my tag team partner in 1978 when I teamed up with Joe against Chief J. Strongbow and uh, Peter Maivia. Uh, but he was always one of my favorite jobbers. There you go. I, I always had favorite jobbers, too. I liked S.D. Jones, S.D. Special Delivery Jones. Yeah. I, I think I saw him win once out of all the times, but he always almost won. He only always almost won. Yeah, he was kind of a guy on TV that uh, won some TV matches unless he was in there against uh, a B-level or A-level performer. Uh, so he had his share of victories, but he never really got elevated to the point where uh, he would be considered a legitimate contender for the title or tag team title. Let's go on to match number two. Eddie Graham defeated Black Jack Slade in 10 minutes, 14 seconds. Yeah, Slade was somebody that uh, we didn't know too much about. Eddie Graham, of course, coming in from Florida and one of the real uh, elite wrestlers. And Eddie and his brother, Dr. Jerry Graham, were just so instrumental in that tag team scene in the early 60s at the Garden in the late 50s. Uh, but Eddie Graham, you know, real name Edward Gossett, he was actually blind in one eye from a 1968 accident that required over 300 stitches he couldn't wrestle for 15 months he was a promoter booker and a lot of people say he was a genius uh, at his booking skills and just a real true uh hardcore uh lifer and pro wrestling also had a lot of demons in and out of the ring they covered it pretty extensively on the uh tales of the territories recently on vice tv where eddie just kind of got out of control with alcohol and he was also a pilot uh so he used to fly some of the wrestlers around some of some of the times when he was inebriated so uh he wound up committing suicide uh 
after uh, McMahon took over all the territories and his drinking was out of control. But Eddie Graham still uh, back then, as fans, you didn't know what went on behind the scenes. It was just exciting to see him at the Metro Madison Square Garden. Did you know who Eddie Graham was? I know he came there a few other times, but did you ever see him wrestle? I mean, like I know you were getting, your TV was New York TV, and I think you also got Los Angeles. Did you ever find Florida wrestling? No, I never watched Florida Championship Wrestling. I, um, you know, as a kid, I just really watched the WWF, and and then uh, when we got the opportunity to get those tapes from los angeles on channel 41 in new york wnju uh that's where i saw those but i i knew of eddie just because of the historic tag team he had with his brother i read about him in the magazines and he and his brother dr jerry graham was featured on the very first uh cover of wrestling review magazine uh so that's kind of a historic magazine but definitely knew who he was and definitely excited to see him Now, we were just talking about wrestling from the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles. This next match, match number three, the Black Gorman defeated Sonny King via submission, six minutes, 25 seconds. Now, this is big. I think it's pretty big news. You're coming in your first appearance, beating Sonny King in your first match at the Garden. But you know, and I don't know, but I, I would think the people around there didn't know as much as you knew that the Black Gorman... He was a pretty big deal. He was a very big deal out in Los Angeles uh, with that great tag team with the great Goliath. And it was kind of odd that he had showed up without uh, Goliath, that they put him in in a singles match. And it was just kind of exciting to to get to see this guy we'd seen on television each and every week. Uh, it was definitely a legendary Mexican performer, a real uh, slugger, a real good brawler. And he used to get a lot of heat. He was a great heel i do remember uh he was also for a while uh the beat the champ tv champion out in los angeles so he had the tag team with goliath and also the singles beat the champ tv title and another thing about him was that he was uh using a finisher that was uh, later really made famous by jake the snake roberts called the ddt so uh, he was one of the first guys i ever saw use that particular hold. Black Gordman, his first appearance at the Garden, very excited about it. His real name, uh, Victor Sarajas, and he was from Mexico. You know, this is this goes back to different generations of wrestling. Uh, back in the 70s, 80s also, they, they had that TV title. And the TV title was there because you knew you'd go at least one good match. You see somebody you really knew, and it's a title on the line, and it gave it some like, oh, there's going to be something here today. They don't have that anymore because everyone's on TV today. All the champions are on every week. Everyone's on every week. We're back in the day. It was a big deal to see a champion wrestle on TV. Yeah, it was. And that didn't happen really often unless you were. uh, And they had that great promotion to beat the champ TV uh, championship. But it was uh, rare to see uh, championships defended. It was more um, when you saw a championship match on TV, it was uh, typically a tag team title match. The heavyweight champion especially in the WWF, rarely appeared on television. And when he did, it was rarely a title match. It was usually a non-title match. And let's go on to match number four. Victor Rivera fought the spoiler to a 20-minute time limit draw. Yeah, the spoiler, uh, Don Jardine was his name, was uh, really on his way out at the Garden. Rivera was always somebody that was really solid B-level performer, Big following with the Puerto Rican fans, um, Rivera and the spoiler, 20-minute draw, nothing really exciting about that. Rivera, I mean, really had an interesting run in the Northeast and then went out to the West Coast and uh, was a big star out there as well. 
and he didn't travel to NWA, AWA a lot. It was usually just LA, New York, and I believe he wrestled in Puerto Rico as well. He uh, had his first uh, Madison Square Garden appearance on February 19th, 1968, when he beat Hans Mortier in 11 minutes and 33 seconds. But that day also was pretty historic. That February 19th, 1968 show was the first wrestling show at the new uh, Madison Square Garden uh, located at Penn Plaza. Uh, So uh, Rivera uh, helped christen that building. We are going to hear more about Hans the Great Mortier on our next bonus show, which we're talking about right now. We'll be going over the entire MSG show uh, from the night Bruno San Martino beat Buddy Rogers in 48 seconds to win the championship on May 17th, 1963. So we're planning that one now. So you'll hear more about Hans Mortier uh, on that bonus show when we do that one. We were just saying a couple of minutes ago that Victor Rivera had a really large Puerto Rican contingency, a lot of fans. Back in the day, they went with nationalities. Can you explain that for a second to people who don't understand like what nationalities? I know Bruno was for the Italians, Victor Rivera for the Puerto Ricans. Who else and, and why did they do that? Why, why did that make such a big difference? Well, uh, Vince McMahon Sr. felt that having an ethnic champion uh, would help draw that segment of the population. And it was pretty much a safe bet. When Bruno, even before Bruno, when Argentina Rocca was there, uh, that drew a lot of uh, ethnic fans as well. And then Bruno came in and then had that huge Italian following. And then when they gave the title over to Pedro Morales, uh, he had the Puerto Rican following. So it was just kind of a way that McMahon promoted the top guys in the championship uh, level that they would draw uh, those uh, fanatical fans that were followers of theirs um, based on even the country that these wrestlers were from. So it was just the way he uh, put guys over on top. I remember a few months ago, we talked about Pedro Morales versus classy Freddie Blassie, and they had to end the match early because the crowd was getting out of control. Yeah, the crowd was definitely surging, uh, getting close to the ring. There was really no barricades uh, that there are today. And uh, Morales, anytime he was getting beat and especially pummeled, the fans would really think it was real and uh, they would try to do anything they could to uh, stop it. But yeah, it was sometimes a little dangerous watching Morales because the fans were were surging and they would get overly excited and there was a lot of debris thrown into the ring and uh, you never know who was going to try to even get into the ring. Those That's when the security at the Garden really earned their money when they had to pull uh, fans that got way too excited out of there. It was just kind of like almost like the fanatical uh, explosions that you see at soccer. It was just very intense. And as a young kid, uh, you'd really look at it and say, holy smokes, I'm in the middle of what could be a potential riot. You know, It's just very interesting to me that you look back, we're going back to the 70s, and it's a different kind of wrestling. It's, it's a different kind of wrestling compared to what it is today, and it was a different way to handle it. So I, I just find it really interesting how they used to book the matches and how the matches or the audience almost got out of control back then where you don't see as much today like that. No, you don't. I mean, wrestling certainly has changed, and anybody who's old enough to remember these old Madison Square Garden shows and uh, those numbers are becoming less and less as everybody gets older, and then, you know, it, it's just a different business. I mean, uh, the wrestling that I grew up with, and this was the era that I grew up, it changed during the Hulkamania era. That really started the change of wrestling into more of a mainstream product. And then as the business got more exposed and people were kind of tipped off that this was a show or sports entertainment, 
then the audience changed even more and it's now segued and evolved into what it is today. So uh, definitely interesting to see how the, the makeup of the crowd was, the reactions of the crowd was, and now everybody thinks they know everything uh, based on social media. So uh, everybody thinks they're smart. <laughs> and I, I could just tell you right now, I am not smart. That's why I do the show with you. So I learn about this stuff. Let's go to match number five, WWF heavyweight champion. We talked about him. Pedro Morales defeated Ray Stevens in 11 minutes, 58 seconds, when the referee, Danny Bartfield, stopped the bout, ruling the challenger could not continue because of excess bleeding. Yeah, this was this was a real brawl. And Stevens, who was just uh, a superstar from the San Francisco Bay Area, who was uh, over as a good heel, and when he even came to the ring, um, he already was supporting a swollen eye from maybe a, a previous match or maybe a bar brawl, who the hell knows. But it was immediately a brawl and that became bloody really fast, and Morales opened him up. And it was an exciting match. It was, you know, 11 minutes and change, but it was all action. I remember it vividly because I was shooting pictures of it. And it just was an exciting, exciting brawl. You know, a couple of notes from this. Ray Stevens uh, actually debuted in 1950 at the age of 15. And he had a really long career. He had a 42-year long career. He retired in 1992. He was married to a female wrestler for a while. Teresa Thies was her name, who was 10 years older than him. And he also had a few acting roles as well. He was always a tough guy, but he appeared in the 1974 movie The Wrestler uh, with Vern Gagne in that movie. And in 1978 was also in another movie. This was with Sylvester Stallone, Terry Funk, and that was Paradise Alley. And Paradise Alley was went way before that Rocky movie came out. He was inducted in the WWE Hall of Fame in 2020, uh, and he was given tribute there. And he also, uh, for the newsletter readers out there, was part of the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame in 1996. A good brawler, someone who drew heat, uh, someone who was a legend out in the San Francisco area and really a legend throughout wrestling, Ray Stevens. And it was really exciting for me to see him take on Pedro Morales. I remember the first time I saw Ray Stevens, it was on Channel 9. And I remember it was when they were trying to turn Snooka babyface. And they did. It was Captain Lou Albano was the manager of Jimmy Snooka and also this guy named Ray Stevens. And Ray Stevens came in the ring. And this is after the whole Jimmy Snuka, Lou Albano, Buddy Rogers thing is going on. And they were going to have a match and something broke loose. I can't remember what happened, but I do remember that Ray Stevens gave uh, Jimmy Superfly Snuka a couple of pile drivers. I believe one was on the concrete. He, he split them way open. So it was Ray Stevens coming in to turn Snuka into a babyface um, was pretty cool. Let's go to match number six. We just talked about this guy a couple of seconds ago, Vern Gagne. AWA champion Vern Gagne defeated Buddy Wolf via submission with a sleeper hold. 13 minutes, 51 seconds. Wait, wait a second. I said AWA. AWA at the Garden, John? Yeah, uh, it was really interesting. This was the match that I was looking forward to more than any others when I had found out through the television announcements that Vern Gagne was actually going to be there. It was it was very exciting to me um, uh, because he was the AWA champion, and there was uh, there was co cooperation back then. Really, everyone had their own territories, and because Gagne also ran the AWA, maybe he came in for. Uh, some meetings with McMahon Sr. about some talent exchanges. But he came in, and that was the match I anticipated the most on this entire card. 
to see Vern Gagne, and especially to see if they were going to allow him to wear the AWA championship belt and announce him as the AWA champion, which they did. And I remember the ring announcer for this show was actually Vince McMahon Jr. Uh, be- uh, before he, his uh, taking over the company from his dad. This was a young Vince McMahon uh, in the middle of the ring doing the uh, uh, the ring announcing. Gagne, uh, his uh, real name, Laverne Clarence Gagne, he debuted in 1949, and what a career he had. He retired in 1986. Great amateur wrestler. Uh, was an alternate for the United States freestyle wrestling team at the 48 Olympic Games. He was also uh, drafted to play football. He was drafted in the 16th round by the Chicago Bears, number 145 pick in that draft. And in 1960, he formed his own promotion. Uh, That was the AWA, the American Wrestling Association, along with his partner and promoter Wally Carbo. That territory ran from 1960 to 1991. Back then, it was just really three big promotions. It was the WWWF. It was the NWA and the AWA. Even all the wrestling magazines, when they did their ratings and rankings, uh, they always listed the big three, which were those three promotions. So getting to see him at the Garden was really, really special. It was a um, treat for me, and I got some really cool shots of him, you know, a couple of them that with the belt on, and so that was kind of cool. Uh, but Ganya hadn't been at the Garden for a very long time. He uh, he had made his first appearance, actually, October 27th, 1953, when he defeated the Mighty Atlas in what was the semi-main event at the time. And ticket prices back then, I wasn't even around back then, started at $1.50, and the uh, ringside seats were only 5 bucks. Wow. So, uh, yeah, and Buddy Wolf was another one. He was trained by Ganya. And he had been brought in to the garden to only take on really some of the attractions. Buddy Wolf, I mean, had uh, Andre the Giant's first match. One of the guys that took on Mil Moscris and one of Moscris's first appearances there. And him with Ganya, working with Ganya, everybody knew who Buddy Wolf was. He was a good heel. Uh, also married to Vivian Bashan, who was the uh, sister of Mad Dog and Butcher. Another little side note for Buddy Wolf, he was uh, also part of a mass tag team with Darren Jardine, known as the Spoilers, number one and two, back in the day. So uh, interesting tidbits about Mr. Wolf, Mr. Ganya, and uh, the end result here. Wanted to see Ganya finish him off with the sleeper hold, and that's exactly what happened after 13 minutes to see Vern Ganya slap that sleeper hold on Buddy Wolf, and you knew it would be lights out. And we were just talking about this earlier. Tales from the Territory um, here in the States is on Vice. They did one on the AWA and about Vern Gagne. I liked it. I, I thought it was pretty good. I think yeah. people paid a lot of respect to Vern Gagne. And a lot of these promoters didn't get a lot of respect when Vince took over. And it was nice to see people saying nice things about Vern. Um, I think Medusa said something really nice. She's like, if it was for him, I would never have gotten to where I got. Um, you know, a lot of people really liked Vern. And he was, he was a hell of an athlete. He really was, and he was really a legit guy. He was an amateur wrestler, and he was a he, you know he brought so many people into the wrestling business with his school and his camp in uh, in Minneapolis, and and uh, he didn't take it easy on him. But he was legit, and he had a long run, and he had uh, that title on and off in the AWA for many many years. A really true legend of the business. And the AWA in its heyday was really drawing well. Let's go on to match number seven. Tony Gurria, one of my favorites, defeated Chuck O'Connor, 11 minutes, 54 seconds. Yeah, this one was kind of like uh, a snoozer in a lot of ways. Only 11 minutes again. Uh, Gurria defeating Chuck O'Connor, who 
really was uh, paying his dues. It was a second straight loss at the Garden, but uh, Chuck would certainly have a, a, a wonderful career later on as uh, Big John Studd, also a tag team champion with Killer Kowalski, known as the Executioners. Uh, but, you know, he was not uh, being put over in his run here with the WWF at the time. Gurria is another story. I mean, he was an ex-rugby player. Uh, his first appearance at the Garden uh, was in uh, 1971. He retired in 1987. He signed a contract with Vince Jr. in 1972 and uh, made his WWF debut with a TV taping in the Philadelphia Arena. And that took place on September 20th, 1972. So his debut in 71 was as an active pro wrestler. But his WWF debut actually took place in 1972. He was a young guy. One of the best drop kicks you'd ever see. His elevation on the drop kicks were probably better than anyone I've ever seen. I mean, he could fly so high with a drop kick that he'd actually hit somebody on the top of the shoulder, which was phenomenal to see. And he had this tag team title runs. Uh, his uh, teams uh, consisted of, I mean, he won the title for the first time with Haystacks Calhoun. And then he came in and uh, uh, was a rookie of the year, uh, tied with Bob Orton Jr. in 1973 across the business. He went over well. He had babyface, uh, you know, uh, matinee idol looks. The girls loved him. Uh, and he had that uh, Australian accent. And he was over as a babyface, really, really big. And his legacy was for many years and just a hell of a nice guy outside the ring, too. I uh, really got to spend some time with him uh, in Iowa at one of the uh, Hall of Fame inductions. And I've seen him in the Cauliflower Alley and just a heck of a guy. Just a really nice guy. Big fan, big fan, Tony Gurria. Now, we're going a little later on in the 70s when I started watching wrestling because it was on at midnight and I was a young kid, so I couldn't watch it all the time. But when I did, I remember tuning in to Tony Gurria and Rick Martel. They were the tag team champions when mm -hmm. I started. I was like, these guys are great. And, and it seems like Tony Gurria became the veteran after that. He, he's the veteran guy that you put with the young guys um, in, in tag teams. And then he went behind the scenes at the WWF and then the WWF and then the WWE, correct? Yeah, he spent many, many years in the back as a road agent and producer of some of the matches, but he was uh, a mainstay as an agent for the WWE uh, for many years, really just, uh, I don't know how many years it's been now since he's been out totally, but he uh, had a long run, not only as an active wrestler, tag team champion, uh, somebody who was looked up to, and then later on as an agent for the company. Uh, a little behind the scenes for me, I used to work in radio in Scranton, Pennsylvania and Reno, Nevada. So I was all over the place doing radio, and we always worked with the WWF, later on the WWE. And when we were with the WWE, we'd bring fans backstage and do different things like that. And a lot of times the fans would come back and they'd meet a wrestler or whatever, and they're done. And then somebody, you know, with the WWF or WWE would say to me, you know, uh, you need anything else? You want a picture? And I go, yeah, I'd love a picture. And I, I wouldn't look at the wrestler. I'd look at the agent. i go, can I get one with him? And one time it was Tony Gurria, and the second time it was uh, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And it was great because like, they were like, yeah, I guess so. But like at that time, no one was talking about history of wrestling. They were always talking about mm -hmm. the new guys. So do you want to picture with Duke the Dumpster's Drossy, or would you like to <laughs> picture with Tony Gurria? So I, I picked Tony Gurria. Not, nothing against Duke. I'm sure he's a nice guy. But just the, the behind the scenes at the WWE is pretty cool when you start seeing people that we grew up on watching. Mm -hmm. Now they're, they're working in the behind the scenes in the business. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, let's go to match number eight, the WWWF Tag Team Champions, Professor Toro Tanaka 
and Mr. Fuji fought Gorilla Monsoon and Chief J Strongbow to a 20-minute curfew draw. I love this. The last match of the night could be a main event. Yeah, it was a tag team title match, and um, you know Tanaka and Fuji going to the draw at 20 minutes with uh, Monsoon and Strongbow. It was one of those matches where you know I was smartened up to the business. And you kind of knew that very rare you're going to see title change there at the Garden. And also, when you see that match going into close to 11 p.m., you just know that it's going to be a draw and you get the frig out of there. So you catch your train, and that's what I did that night. Richie wanted me to ask you this, and I think it's really important. When did the WWF start using the idea of let the fans go home happy? And he was talking about he remembers back at the Garden in the 70s. You could smell the curfew coming. You knew when the curfew was coming. Mm -hmm. A match like this... Could go either way, and I'd want to stay till the end of this match because it seems like a pretty cool match. Yeah, yeah, but uh, they didn't care, obviously. I mean, uh, they started really sending fans home happy, I think, during the Hulkamania era, during the mid-'80s to late-'80s is when they would try to uh, send everybody home happy. But, you know, that's that's kind of a, you know, that's kind of a an argument or, you know, everyone could have an opinion about that, whether, whether it was consistent or not, but... Uh, the fact that you go to a wrestling show and back when I did, it was, I was happy just to be there, you know, and, and, you know, there was never really a show I'd left and I was like, this sucks. I mean, it was the garden. It's the legends that you're seeing and, you know, the, the people that you're seeing in person for the first time, it was the atmosphere. So uh, I would say 99.99% of the time, with the exception of Bruno Pedro at Shea, I went home happy to be there and, uh, learning more about the business through the magazines and, and having aspirations to do other things. And I was in the middle of uh, releasing my first Freddie Blassie uh, King of Men newsletters around this time as well. This is when it really started being distributed and I was writing about this stuff in my newsletters back then. So John, how would you rate this show? We haven't had many good shows in the past. How would you rate this one? Well, the last few were disappointments. This one I gave a, a thumbs up, solid thumbs up just because it was Vern Gagne, Ray Stevens with that brawl. It was those two matches that really stood out for me on this card to see Ganya for the first time, to see that brawl between uh, Morales and Ray Stevens, and then they announced the rematch would take place in December. So I, I would overall give it a thumbs up. I really enjoyed this one. All right. Hey, and John and I want to thank everyone at our Patreon again, patreon.com slash John Arizzi. John, we talked earlier, you have some uh, photos from this card that you want to put up. Uh, which ones do you have? Uh, I have uh, probably three or four pictures of Morales and Ray Stevens. I mean, uh, there was a, a really classic shot of him leaning over the rope, almost looking right at me. And I was really close. I'd moved up. I ran up to the ring and, you know, his eyes bleeding, his eyes all puffed out. Another shot of him lying on the ring apron, bleeding. Um, Morales coming into the ring with the belt on. I have a nice shot of him, El Olimpico. And then I have a couple of shots of Ganya with that AWA championship belt. And I'm going to put these pictures all up when I upload this show for our patrons. All right. That's exclusively at patreon.com slash John Narizzi. Once again, we want to give a shout out to Scott Teal and Crowbar Press Wrestling in the Garden. I, I found out the full name, The Battle for New York. It's available exclusively yes. at Crowbar Press.
Yes, it is. It's our Bible here when we cover these garden shows. It really is, and we couldn't do it without it, and we couldn't do it without you, John. The next garden show from December 18th, 1972, a week before Christmas and the last show of the year, the headlining rematch, Ray Stevens gets a second crack at Pedro's title. Plus, the first masked wrestler will be appearing at Madison Square Garden. Yes, the first masked wrestler who was actually allowed to wear his complete mask, and that was going to be something that was very exciting to see, and I'm looking forward to covering that on our next episode here at Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden. For John Arizzi and Richie Garcia, I'm Tim Poutre. We'll see you next time. <laughs>